Our great God and Heavenly Father, uh, you are indescribable. Uh, When we consider the world that you have made, when we consider our place in it, Lord, it just blows us away. Lord, we pray now as we come to your word and as we seek to understand who you are as the creator God, that we might better understand you, that we might better understand your world, and that we might better understand ourselves as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now I want to begin by asking, what makes a person? What makes a person? At the most elemental level, what makes a person? I'm getting a smile from my chemistry PhD, because 65% of us is oxygen, 18% is carbon, then there's some hydrogen, nitrogen, and then there's 21 other elements that make up a person. So really, hate to break the news to you, but you are just a blob of elements. Uh, And if humans, as we're just an assortment of elements, uh, what makes us so special? Uh, You might have a special person in your life, you might think they're a particularly attractive uh, blob of elements, but that's all they are, Uh, just a blob of ingredients. And what makes us any better than like a rock or another animal or any other kind of puddle of elements made of the same things? Why are we special? If, we all, if it all boils down to it, what's the point if that's all that we are? Uh, but what about this? The universe is 14 billion years old, as we're told. Now, I want you to imagine 14 billion years, uh, over. imagine that as a one calendar year. One calendar year, January to December. Uh, the Milky Way, our neck of the woods, it didn't appear until about now, the month of May. Our solar system, the Earth, the Sun and the planets, they didn't come into being until September. And then humans, we don't first appear on the scene until the 31st of December at 11.52pm. And the last 500 years, so the time since the Reformation, that makes up the last 100th of a second on the 31st of December. The last 100th of a second relative to the age of the universe. If we are so small so insignificant, so irrelevant in in, in comparison to the vastness of the cosmos. What is the point? What is the point of life? What difference could we hope to make in this world, in this universe, if we are so insignificant? If we're just a bundle of elements, if life is, is, is but a blink of the eye... Stephen Hawking's, that uh, famous physicist, he puts it like this. The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in an outer suburb among one of the hundreds of billions of galaxies. Chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet in the middle of nowhere. Is that all that we are? Or another evolutionary biologist puts it a bit more bluntly. He says this, Science tells us that we are inconsequential specks of dust, scrabbling around blindly on a pale blue dot, orbiting a star in an inconceivably large universe. He says this, Some say size doesn't matter, but we all know that it really does. How can anything we do be important? How can anything we do 
be important? What's the point? How do we make sense of our lives? How do we make sense of life in the vastness of the universe? How do we make sense of our lives when really we're just a bundle of elements? How do we make sense of the meaninglessness of it all, the randomness of it all? Well, here's where knowing that God is the one who created it makes all the difference. Knowing and being in relationship with the one who made and sustains it all, that will give us the answer. And when we come to the doctrine of creation, it helps us firstly by getting our perspective right because the doctrine of creation, what the Bible teaches us about creation, it shows us how big God is and how small we are. How big God is and how small we are. And the way that we're going to tackle it today is we're going to look at some of the things the Bible does tell us about creation, some of the things God tells us about creation, and then we're going to look at some ideas about creation that are wrong and unhelpful and are best to be avoided. So firstly, what does the Bible tell us about creation? The first thing... Uh, The first thing the Bible says about anything, really, uh, is that God created everything from nothing. Now, there's heaps of parts of the Bible we could go to, but you really can't go past that first sentence of the Bible. It's a sentence which tells us God created everything from nothing. Everything from nothing. It's an easy one to find, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now that verse alerts us to that there, there was a time before time. Uh, not the land before time, that movie with the cute little dinosaurs. But there was a time before time, a point at which there was a beginning. And before that, there was only ever God. There was a time where nothing existed but God. And out of that nothingness, at the very beginning, God created. And the word created there uh, is a word that's only ever used in the Bible for God. It's a word that emphasizes that God didn't just take things that existed and mold them into this world and the things we see. God didn't kind of cut or split or join or knit or craft this world. The Bible's clear. He created and he created from nothing. And there's an emphasis there as well. God is totally free and totally unbound in his sovereignty. His creativity is without limits and his power is beyond limits. And Genesis goes on to say that uh, the way that God creates is is simply by a word. He just has to speak. He speaks a word and the the raw materials, they come into being. And having brought them into being, the the chapters, Genesis chapter 1, describes how he created everything. Everything in the heavens and the earth, from the smallest molecule to the, to, the, to, the, to the largest galaxy, every single thing God brings into being simply by speaking. Simply by speaking. Uh, now, there's an author, Bill Bryson. I quite like reading his books. Uh, the first book of his that I read was uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything, and it's a book that kind of surveys the world, and it's um, it, it blew me away with the beauty and complexity and the scope of the heavens and the earth. Now, Bill Bryson, he's not a Christian, uh, he, but this book, if you have the eyes of, you know, if you read it as a Christian, it, it blows you away of the glory of the Lord in the world that he made. Now, for example, in one chapter, he makes the point, he tries to give us the size of the universe. If you were to make a scale model of the universe and, and you shrank the earth down to the size of a pea, And imagine how big you would be on that P if the earth was the size of a P. On that scale, Jupiter would be something like 300 metres away, which is like the other side of the basin reserve. And on that scale, the thing formerly known as a planet, Pluto, 
that would be one and a half kilometers away, which is kind of way down at Te Papa. Picture it. The earth is the size of a pea and you are on it. And Pluto is down at Te Papa somewhere. But that's nothing because the nearest star, apart from the sun, the nearest star to earth would be 16,000 kilometers away. That would be as far away as Greenland on the other side of the planet. That's the nearest star. The earth is... The earth is so small and the universe is so large, it's beyond imagination. It's just enormous. And if you can see the size and the power and the majesty of the God who just said a word, and the earth and Jupiter and Pluto and the nearest star and everything else beyond, just said a word, it all spins into being because he said so. He said the word and they were created. We are dealing with an enormously powerful God. An enormously powerful God. But it doesn't end there. The Bible tells us that he's doing this all of the time. God is not just the creator of everything. He is also the continuous sustainer of everything. Now this is something that's a little bit hard for us to understand or relate to. Because when we create something, maybe you've been painting or maybe you've been knitting or maybe you've knocked together a piece of furniture... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still quite proud of the, the sound desk, not the, the, the electric bit, but the piece of wood that's up there. I, I put that together. I painted it. Um, now I, I, I sit back and I admire the sound desk. It's, it's, it's there. It's doing its job. It's great. But we really just fashion stuff out of things that are already made. And that desk, it doesn't require my, my help for its ongoing existence. But that's not the case with God and his creation. This lectern, this building, you and me, your friends, your family, my dog, everything on this whole planet and this whole universe, it only exists and it only continues to exist because it is sustained and upheld by God. It only exists and only continues to exist because it's sustained and upheld by God. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Do you see it? Even even the little insignificant stuff like sparrows and hair, they are constantly governed by God. One of the take-home messages there is if you're going bald, then take that up with God because he knows the number of hairs on your head. You might want to ask him for a few more. Um, But that's just little stuff, right? How much more the big stuff? The universe only exists for every second or every day because God wills it. The galaxies move because God moves them. The sun and the moon, they, they, they rise and they set because God moves them. Uh, during the school holidays, we uh, took our kids to see the movie Peter Rabbit. Uh, we loved it. Um, but there's this beautiful moment in Peter Rabbit where there's a rooster and, and, and the sun comes up in the morning. And the reason the, the rooster crows in the morning is like, oh my goodness, it came up again. It went down yesterday. I didn't know it would come up, but it came up again. It's amazing. That only happens. The sun rises each morning because God wills it. God makes it happen. God sustains it. 
He is a big God and the implications are huge. I'm going to look at some of those over the coming weeks as we look at some other key doctrines. But for now, let's check out the third and perhaps the most profound aspect of the doctrine of creation. See, up until this point in the sermon, an Orthodox Jew or an Orthodox Muslim, they would be pretty happy with what I've said so far. There's nothing uniquely Christian about it so far. God is the creator and sustainer of everything. They'd be happy with that. But here's where Christianity breaks company and sets its own path. Because in the New Testament, it wants us to see that not only is creation made by God and upheld by God, it also tells us that the creation is made by Jesus and made for Jesus. Creation is made by Jesus and is made for Jesus. Uh, and in the New Testament, kind of Colossians chapter 1 is, is kind of the purple passage, the one that really shows us most clearly. So it'd be great if you can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, For in him, that is Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, and here it is. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, can you see with those words, all things have been created through him and for him. Through him and for him. All those amazing things we've thought about, about about God moving galaxies, about God being aware of every single atom, of of everything owing its existence to God, all that amazing stuff that, 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 that has now been poured into Jesus. And the New Testament tells us that creation is actually all about him. Uh, John's Gospel describes Jesus as the Word of God, the Word of God become flesh. And in other words, the Word of God through whom all creation came into being. John is telling us that that was Jesus back there. In pre-incarnate form, before the Word became flesh, when God said, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1, when God said, let the waters teem with living creatures back in Genesis chapter 1, that was the work of Jesus, the Word of God. And all of a sudden when we see Jesus in that context, Jesus becomes very big, doesn't he? Look around. Look around this room. Every person in this room, everything you can see, Jesus owns it. He sustains it. He made it. It is for him that it exists. Jesus is that majestic. He is that big. He is that significant. But in order to see how majestic Jesus is, I think it's worth us turning our attention to some things that God does not tell us about creation. And and by this I mean there are some very common and kind of all pervasive ideas that are in the movies we watch, in the magazines we read, and even we even hear some other Christians talk about the world in these terms. And, and these are ideas that I want to show you, and they're just plain wrong, and so it's worth you knowing about them. Because what they do is they tend to reduce the size of God in our thinking. Uh, now, these words, they may not be too familiar for you, they're on the outline there. Uh, the first is pantheism. Uh, pantheism. It has nothing to do with panthers, in case you're wondering. It's pantheism. Pan is in all, and the- theos is in God, all God. And pantheism believes that the created world and God are, are one and the same. 
It's the mother nature idea. God is everywhere. Every flower, every tree, every bird, it's all God and we're all connected. Uh, now the Disney movies, they love this sort of idea. It's in almost, it's in almost every Disney movie. Pocahontas, the colour of the wind idea. Uh, the song goes, you think you own whatever land you're, so you think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing that you can claim. But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. The rainstorm and the river are my brothers. The heron and the otter are my friends. We're all connected to each other in a circle, in a hoop that never ends. Um, It's the Lion King. It's the circle of life. It lives in you. It lives in me. The funny thing about, uh, about it is that an American morals group uh, boycotted the Lion King and they protested it because, unfortunately, they thought uh, that the word sex appeared in a cloud of dust at one point in the movie. Kind of, ooh, there it is. But the sad thing is that this, this morals group was so caught up in looking for naughty words in the clouds that they missed the really big problem of the movie. It's heretical. It's all about pantheism. We're God and creation and we're all one and the same. But it's not. And what it does is it it reduces the size of God. It makes him much smaller than he really is. God is not this world. This world is external and separate to God. He created it. He created it in and through and for Jesus. Uh, The second big word I want to teach you today is that of naturalism. And this one actually makes God so much smaller that he doesn't even exist. Uh, Because naturalism says that there is no God. And naturalism is the idea that the only thing that exists in this world is physical matter. Stuff that you can see and taste and touch and smell. And a lot of scientists are into naturalism. They assume that there is no God. And they kind of look to the the, the physical laws and the physical forces around us to explain the way things work the way that they do. And to be honest, on a pragmatic level, um, naturalism is very helpful in science. Uh, The famous scientist Francis Bacon, when he formed the Royal Society in London, he urged the scientists there to not use God as their explanation for things. Um, And and, and that's kind of a a good thing. It's a pretty lazy scientist who kind of gets to a really hard puzzle and goes, ah, the mysteries of God, and they don't don't push on. Um, but the trick was that Francis Bacon, as well as having a delicious name, he was, he was a devout Christian, as were most of the Royal Society at the time. They all believed in a creator God. They had a pragmatic naturalism. And, and so as they did their science, as they did their science they, and they were pushing each other to, to really investigate the way that things worked rather than just stopping and saying, well, that's mysteries of God. But what's happened is that over time, many people now think because science hasn't looked to God for the answers, people have assumed that because science doesn't look to God for the answers, that, that science has kind of has, has proven that God is not there. But that's actually kind of crazy logic. It doesn't actually make sense. Science can't disprove God. Now, the classic example is that of kind of evolutionary theory. People think... Okay, evolutionary theory, animals evolve via kind of random genetic mutations, which means, because it's random, uh, that God doesn't exist. So God has now been disproved. But that doesn't actually follow. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament tells us that God controls even the, the throwing of a dice, which is kind of a classic example of random numbering. 
If God is in sovereign control of the roll of the dice, just because something happens randomly doesn't mean that God is not somehow involved in it. That just may be describing the way that he chose to do it. You see, we've already seen that God, he sustains all things all the time. And it doesn't matter if it seems to happen randomly to us. It doesn't matter if they happen regularly to us. It doesn't matter if it happens in repeatable patterns to us. It's all controlled and ordained by God. And so the bottom line is, don't be intimidated by science. It cannot disprove God. It simply assumes that there is no God in order to seek to understand the world on its own terms. I mean, some scientists who believe in naturalism, they assume that there is no God. But relax. There is a God. And He is very big. And if you do science well, and if you have the eyes to see, you'll see the glory of God in the world that He has made. Now, there's one more word to look at, and this is uh, probably uh, the most subtle and and the one that infects uh, a lot of Christians' thinking, and that is uh, deism. It's reducing the bigness of God. Uh, Deism is the idea that God created the world and the universe, uh, but since then he's kind of stepped back and let it run by itself. It's kind of the idea of God, the the watchmaker who wound up the watch and, and kind of set it off, and now he's just standing back and it's doing its own thing running itself. And it's kind of the internal mechanisms of creation, Mother Nature, the laws of science, whatever you want to call them, they're the things that are kind of keeping the thing ticking over now, uh, ticking along, and God is just kind of separate from it. And if you've been paying attention this morning, that's, that's not what the Bible says, is it? We've already seen He is upholding everything every minute of the day. It's only by His continuous pleasure that anything continues to exist. Uh, But deism, it undermines that aspect of God. It says that the world is just kind of running itself separate to God. And we can actually see that that, that some Christians think this way. I think a sign that people, uh, uh, Christians are thinking this way if they have an unhealthy focus on the miraculous, the extraordinary. As if God is somehow at work more in unusual things than usual things. That God is somehow more at work in spectacular things, things that we cannot explain by normal means, than everyday, ordinary things, mundane things. It's the sort of thinking that starts to say that somehow prayers that are written down are less spiritual than prayers that are prayed kind of off the cuff. That somehow a sermon that is carefully prepared and, and preached from notes is somehow a less spiritual sermon than one that's delivered off the top of your head. That somehow being healed by going to a special healing service, God is somehow more involved in that action than, say, going to the doctor or having an operation. Those ideas, they come from deism. They come from the idea that God is less involved in this world when things are predictable and repeatable, when it's routine. That God doesn't work through natural means. And what that does is it reduces the size of the God of the Bible. God is equally at work in all things, all of the time. God is equally at work in all things, all of the time. No matter how mundane, no matter how routine, no matter how miraculous, no matter how unrepeatable, no matter how unpredictable, God is at work in everything, all of the time. He's at work in everything, all of the time. And so, next time someone tells you that they got healed by God because they went to a healing service at their church during the week, tell them that's great. 
Praise the Lord with them. Give thanks to God for that. And then don't be afraid to tell them that God healed you too because you had a headache this week and you took a Panadol and it went away. Because God is just as at work in that as he is in the other. And to not see that is deism and that's to reduce the size of God. That's to say that God is not the big creator, sustainer of the universe. That he is continuously holding all things together and working all things all of the time. God is that big. And that's the point I really want us to focus on. God is that big. Because there's nothing like the doctrine of creation. Understanding that God made it, that God sustains it, and that was all made and done in and through and for Jesus. You see, when we realize that, that it puts us in our place. It lets us know that we are the creatures. We are the creatures and he is the creator. We are not the boss. And when we look at the universe and we look at its vastness, or we look at ourselves just as a bundle of elements and, and we look at them and we conclude like Stephen Hawking's would, that the human race is just a chemical scum, a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a, a very average star on the outer suburbs of one of a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant. We could look at all and think that. Or we could look at the world around us and see that God has made it and that he continues to make and sustain all things and we could join with King David in Psalm 8 and say these words. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens and when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind? that you are mindful of them. Human beings, that you care for them. You see, the universe, it declares the glory of its creator. It declares the power and the majesty and the splendor of God. And yet a God that is that big and that powerful, as Psalm 8 tells us, he is mindful of us. He cares for us. He loves us. And we see his love in creation. We see, we see that in the way that we can enjoy and experience the world that he has made, the sunsets or the science or the sport or whatever it is that floats your boat, whatever gets you out of bed in the morning. It is all a good gift from God to his creatures. God made this world and it was good and it is for us to enjoy. Enjoy and give thanks to him, the giver of every good gift. We can see his love in creation and we can see his love in his sustaining care for the world. You know, you didn't think it this morning, but the sun came up that we continue to exist, that you take that next breath. It's all because of God's good and gracious sustaining of the world that he has made. And we see his love for us in redemption. That although this creation is broken by our sin and rebellion, although we have ignored and rejected the Creator who spun the universe into being by His Word, although we deserve His righteous judgment and destruction, He has intervened. That Word, 
That word of God that, that spoke creation into being, that word humbled himself and became a man, obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see his love in redemption. He hasn't left this world that he has made. He has stepped in to save it, to redeem it, to rescue it. Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The creator God, he has stepped in to save through Jesus, the word of God. And so life, it isn't meaningless. It isn't pointless. We are not the chemical scum on some insignificant rock. But we were made and sustained and saved by the creator God. Now if the band want to come up, I'm going to read to you the words of the song we're about to sing. Hear these words. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand hath made. I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarcely take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sins.